0: this week on the back table podcast going back to what john john said about being at work all the time and like being there early and being there late everyone's going to do that and it's going to be driven by fear of doing something wrong or missing a detail because missing a detail working up a consult as a fellow doesn't really mean anything because someone else is going to catch it but everything even though it might you might have a lot of support things are you're going to feel like everything is on you and you have to dot every i and cross every t i wish someone had told me how long that that feeling would last because then I would at least know that I had a defined endpoint. And for me in particular, it was probably around three to five months, which is almost akin to in fellowship when you become a little bit more comfortable in your skin and the procedure. Every single procedure is the hardest procedure you've done of that type in your entire training career. But after you get to the second or third one, it's going to become cake. And eventually... Everything's going to fade away, and you're going to be trusting the skills that you've been taught during your fellowship, and that's going to kind of guide you along the way.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Now, a brief message from our sponsor. RADPAD was developed by physicians for physicians, clinically proven radiation protection during CINE and digital subtraction and geography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RADPAD radiation protection shields for all your fluoro-guided interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com for a free radiation evaluation and a no-brainer radiation protection cap. And don't forget to tell them that you heard about it on the Backtable Podcast. Now, back to the episode. Today, we have a great episode lined up. We're going to be talking about uh, early career challenges with John John Huang and Sean Murado. Welcome, guys. Welcome to the show. Thanks for reaching out, Sean. Oh, thanks for having us. Yeah, likewise. Happy to be here. Yeah, so we're going to first, before we jump into the the meat of it, I want you guys to do a quick intro. First of all, let's, you know, the three of us have something in common. We all did our residency at Pennsylvania Hospital, so shout out to Pennsylvania Hospital. And and the folks that are still over there, I think who was the uh, chairman at the time, Sean? When you guys were there, uh, when we were
0: there, it was Dr. Brian Englender.
1: Oh yes, uh, Brian. Yeah. So yeah, Brian stepped in. He you know he's one of my attendings, but he stepped in. Uh, uh, he took over after I left, I think. Because when I was there, Dr. Love was the program director, and I know you guys had kind of a changing of the guard. But I'm sure there's some people that are probably still hanging around there,
0: right? Yeah, the core faculty is still there, still pretty strong, and they interact <laughs> regularly with the residents who are now part of the uh, University of Pennsylvania residency.
1: Oh, got it. That's right. Yeah. And is Jonathan still there in body?
0: Yes. Yeah, John he's Dorf. Great. Yes. <laughs> yeah,
1: Dorf. Yeah, Dorf is the best. The I learned so was much from him. Yeah, he he was the fr- he was the f- like fresh out, and that's what we're talking about today. But he was first year attending right when I started, and um, just such a great guy. Even though. You know, clearly, and we're going to talk about this, like those kind of feelings of being overwhelmed and stuff, but he always, and this is kind of like, I guess, a Pearl is like, he always took the time to just be with the residents, even though, you know, the list might be crazy long and he was overwhelmed. He would sit there and take the time to teach you, you know what I mean? Was Simmer, is Simmerman still there or was he there when you guys were there? No, gone. He retired halfway through. Oh, okay. Yeah. He was, he was great too. But okay, well, let's jump into it. You guys are both in academics. We already know where you trained for residency, but tell us where you're at, maybe where you did fellowship and uh, what your practice looks like. Let's start with you, John. John. So after I finished
2: uh, ESIR at Pennsylvania Hospital, I went to my fellowship in vascular and at radiology at MassGen in Boston. And now I'm at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. Been here coming up on my third year. I joined in July of 2020, Strava Fellowship. And it's been, it's been pretty awesome, you know. We're a we're a group of nine, soon to be eleven, and we're practicing one hundred percent IR.
1: Very cool. And is is Teresa still there? I know she just joined. What Varian is that right? Well, Teresa, you're correct, has joined Varian. She still
2: has a clinical presence here. Okay, great. So she was our vice chair and division director. That's right. That's and right. so she had to kind of, you know, remove herself from those roles for obvious reasons. But you know, she she was awesome. Yeah, And that's actually a lot of, you know, what I'm going to be talking about is how your leader can really shape your career. Yeah, And
1: like, you know, for me, at least it's been overwhelmingly positive. She is great. She's been on the show a couple of times. Her father was obviously a legend as well, been on the show. Looking forward to seeing what
0: she's, she's going to be doing, uh, at Berrien as well. Uh, Sean, tell us about where you're at. Sure. So, just like John John and yourself, I graduated from Pennsylvania Hospital, and I did ESIR a year there. Um, it was sort of in its infancy, you know, during this whole transition to the new uh, paradigm of IR. Uh, and then I ended up matching at uh, Thomas Jefferson for my intervention, my independent residency, as they call it. And straight from there, I was hired to work for a four-person IR group in a system called Jefferson Northeast, which was recently required by Thomas Jefferson. It's uh, a three-hospital system servicing the Northeast area of greater Philadelphia uh, with one flagship hospital and two satellite hospitals. I am currently completing my second year uh, in July. Unlike John John, I took a month off after fellowship which uh, I highly recommend if it's uh, an option for you but since then it's I'm in the academic technically it's academic and I have a, a assistant professorship but it's more uh, sort of a community-based hospital system. so I think along those lines I'm going to be talking more about you know interacting in that setting versus kind of trying to you know stay up in the rat race of academia.
1: Yeah, and and thanks again, Sean, for reaching out. I wanted to start out by asking you guys: when you started in these positions, what were the expectations when you started? Where, for example, was it to like John when you were recruited down to UAB, where was it to start a new service line? Was it building upon existing service lines? Was it just status quo, like hey, just come in and help you know work the board, or all the above? You can just tell us a little bit about like what the expectations were when you started. Yeah. Um, so that's a great question. So when I was recruited, U- UAB
2: was undergoing a transition. You know, so that people were talking about were on their way to different things. And then Dr. Creedy and I started at the same time. So when we started, you know, the first thing I did was ask her, "What do you want me to do?" You know, I'm the new attending. We have a relatively small group. You know, I think of six people at that point in time. Like, what what, what do you need me to do? And the the ask was to build up MSK and pain. And luckily, you know, it happens to be my interest. I did a lot of percutaneous ablation, pain control, and vertebral augmentation. So it kind of just fit right in the wheelhouse. And I was like, that's great. You know, I'm going to do a build from essentially zero. And it was just a wonderful opportunity to build something from, you know, from nothing and really have it built my way.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. Because it sounds like you already entering had the buy-in from your section chief. What, How is it with like the referring docs, you know, the other departments in terms of buy-in and even the administration at UAB?
2: Yeah. One of the great things about UAB is that everybody is very collegial. So you don't really have much turf per se, at least in my field. So, you know, for, for tubular augmentation, I remember when I offered it to the orthopedic surgeons and the vascular, uh, sorry, orthopedic and neurosurgeons, they're like fantastic. You know, we have a bunch of patients waiting for somebody to help. So had a lot of buy-in from referring docs. And quite frankly, every device that I've asked for, for spine has been approved. So there's definitely buy-in from the administration as well.
1: I mean, any it sounds like it was smooth sailing once you kind of, you know, uh, hit the ground. Were there any challenges that you kind of didn't expect, you know, trying to build out this service line?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, challenges come, you know, in different flavors. I guess one challenge was there's a new procedure that I perform called Superion. I did that with Josh Hirsch at MGH. I wanted to bring it here. And the neurosurgeons pretty much told me, say, hey, you know, if you don't mind, let's hold off because we just, we've seen some spine process fractures and, you know, we would rather help you build other stuff first, which is incredibly reasonable. So I would say that's a hurdle. So if there's one thing I haven't been able to get through, I guess it's going to be spacers, but that's more of a, a conscious decision to kind of keep good relations with people. You know, when they tell you they're not sure about something, you probably don't need to push it. Don't push it.
1: Yeah. So that's great. So it, it sounds like you, and you have something to work towards in the future, right? It's not like you were given, you know, everything, at, you know, by walking in the door that, that can cause problems too. Right. Cause then you can create a diva out of that. Right. So it's, you know, even though it's not intentional, it's kind of like when you, we walk in the door and you get everything that you asked for, it becomes, you know, the expectation on, on the other side too. So it's kind of nice to have something to work towards as well. How, how long did it take you to get up? I mean, because you've been there a couple of years. Is it, would you say the program's, you know, where you want it to be, where you expected it to be at this point, or has it been slow growth or, you know, fast growth? So I joined at a very weird
2: time. You know, the people that did spines had left. One went to semi-retirement and the other went to a different system outside of the state. So I came in at a period of a vacuum. I also came in during the height of COVID. So in that year, I think we only did one kyphoplasty every two months. I've been here for two and a half, almost three years now. I did 15 kyphoplasties over a period of two weeks last month.
1: Yeah, so that that's pretty satisfactory growth, I would say.
2: <laughs> yeah, I would say we're
1: he's definitely so a hustle. We're averaging <laughs> probably about
2: ten to twenty a month. Yeah, I mean, obviously, these kind of things come in waves. Yeah, you know, yeah. and we do other things like we do basically peripheral nerve ablation, okay. which is also built up through neurosurgery and orthopedic surgery, and we're getting into the SI joint fusion game. Hopefully, you know, yeah, I've, I've got buy-in from them, so you know, it's a it's a constant hustle. And there's, you know, going to be continuous growth. And right now I'm I'm still kind of the only person who's really gung-ho about this in my group of, you know, nine people. And as we get more people, I'm anticipating some people are going to be interested in it and that's going to help jettison this to the next level. So I think, you know, we still have a ways to go. I'm not fully happy with where we are right now, but I mean, you couldn't ask for a better head start.
1: Yeah. And before I get to Sean and, and where he's at, I wanted to, one more question if there because it sounds like you've built a successful spine practice which is fantastic if there was one thing call it communication with referring docs or one thing that you you' you could attest like really had a big role in in getting to where you are today just as advice for the docs out there that might be starting in July what would it be
2: availability yeah be available you're on vacation and you get a phone call from you know a neurosurgeon just answer it and just go hey man what's going on and if you tell them you're on vacation, you usually earns you even more points,
1: yeah, that's I that's so <laughs> true. and that is a common thread we hear on the show from everybody building service line new service lines is just you got to be available night and day. so well, thank you, John John, for sharing that. Sean, tell us about what were the expectations like for you joining Jefferson when you were you basically walked down the street? Oh no, no, you didn't walk down the street because no, I did did you train at Jefferson? So we said prior? Yeah, yeah. so. So that's so that's an also interesting thing that I want to talk about is you trained a f- at Jefferson for fellowship and then you stayed on as an attending and that can be unique as well. I was talking to my wife about this because she she did that at UT Southwestern and we were talking about the pros and cons of staying at the same program
0: right as right. an attending. So my uh, my situation is slightly different uh, because okay. the, our group is separate. It's the, under the same enterprise umbrella. Yeah. Uh, of Thomas Jefferson, but we function in a separate, under a separate silo. Got so it, got it. while I, while I trained with Corrin Gonzalez and Dave Eshelman and the rest of the the gang, um, you're not at the awesome. same site basically. Exactly. Got no, it, got that it. doesn't mean that I'm not constantly in contact with them, uh, getting yeah. help for, for yeah. things like that. But as far as, uh, I think I had a very good situation because the, my, uh, section chief, Stephen Wagner was a former faculty member at Jefferson. He actually, was asked to to uh, kind of head the project in the Jefferson Northeast, and uh, I had become you know in contact with him. And he asked me if I wanted you know to join their group as their older group was kind of you know moving into retirement. And he explained to me his his vision about building a you know the four person group. And there was a high capital budget project that was approved to rebuild new uh, labs, which are in process right now. So. But I think the thing that kind of goes along the lines of, you know, where I was lucky with like John John, uh, was that he basically told me that I could pick a service line to build and I could I could do whatever I wanted with it. And for me, my passion was Deep Venus work uh, because I worked with uh, Ron Winnegar and Rob Ford, who were, you know, Deep Venus gurus in, in Philly. And uh, Dr. Sathedra was there, but he had left um, at Pet from Penn. So we, Jefferson kind of took over a lot of the Venus work. So for me, you know, I spent a lot of time in fellowship in those long, chronic Venus cases, which was awesome. And so, in moving to the Northeast, you know, my first goal was kind of how do I how do I take care of this because it's going to be self motivated a lot of the the service line building. Uh, so, you know, I think I'm not sure what John John had said, but I think along the lines of being available, I think is is very very important uh, when you first start out. And unfortunately, sometimes that requires you to you know be connected more than you would like to. But I think as of now. So now I'm almost finishing my second year. I'm already seeing the fruits of my labor and in in the sense of A, you know, a stronger service line, more patience. and B, I'm not, you know, being contacted as much off off hours. People are a little bit more, they re- kind of respect the boundaries and things like that. So uh, that's kind of where I'm at now. A lot of the stuff we do is because I, I still work in a community setting is, you know, you mentioned the status quo and building the service lines. And, you know, one thing I really wanted to mention about that was you know, those kind of things are sort of the brick and mortar of of getting our names out there. And, you know, most people only know us for those things. So we have to, you know, seize those opportunities to expound upon that. And John John was explaining his, you know, building a complex spine work. You can't really get into those conversations without doing epidurals, doing spinal nerve root injections, doing bone biopsies, you know, lumbar punctures, silly stuff like that can sort of, you know, amplify into, the grander conversation. Yeah, you're totally right, Sean. And I mean, you know, just to give the private practice perspective
1: and, and to build on what you guys were saying, I was brought in just for the status quo, literally to work the board. There was no like, Hey, build this service line and like that. It was just like, Hey, show up and do the cases that are on the board. And even then it was really, you know, and it took me a little bit of time to kind of realize it, but it was super important to get to know the referring docs on an, First name basis, get their phone numbers, you know, give them your phone number because that communication and that availability, I think led them to be more respectful and not dump garbage on you too. And I kind of learned that over time, like the, the better you know them, the more likely they're going to send you good cases and not just send you garbage cases, which is a lot of what we complain about in private practice. I'm sure you guys get them too in
0: academics, right? But you just get, it just comes with it. Getting to know the referring doctors is a very important that we've in the last year since, you know, all the restrictions have been lifted and we've basically, I don't want to say targeted, but we've kind of reached out and cold called the referring specialist urology for PAE, even our vascular surgery colleagues. Uh, John John mentioned, you know, the TURF situation, but a lot of times it just be, it, it just stems from not knowing Right. And so we don't know what the vascular surgeons want to do. We don't know. They don't know what we do. They don't know what we're capable of. We, you know, we took the vascular surgeons out to dinner and we had an awesome time. We, you know, chatted about common patients, common problems, areas where we could help each other, what gaps we could fill. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a I take from you, you take from me scenario.
1: Yeah. And just going back to what I was originally saying, Sean, even though it doesn't sound like this has affected you at all with staying at, you know, Jefferson, but. Some of the challenges I've heard from others where people stay at the same program where they trained at, and I you know one of my attendings had this issue at Vanderbilt when I was a fellow where they just felt like they were an eternal trainee because you're you're there for residency or fellowship you stay on, and it's like you kind of get this feeling like you're still bottom of the totem pole, and then somebody else comes in who, even though you're the same year, they still kind of you know. They get they have a little bit of leverage because they're from a, coming from an outside place. Have you guys experienced that or, or known anybody or any peers that you've had heard complain about that, John? John, yeah,
2: actually, it's a really good point. Um, I watched it happen. You know, so my first year here, we rec- uh, we recruited back a former fellow, and I didn't I never met this person, but he, you know they're a year ahead of me, and you know so they are technically you know more experienced than I, I Would come in as technically my my more senior partner. But I realized that, you know, when I do cases, nobody comes to bother me unless I ask for help. When this other individual does cases, people are very willing to give pointers, (laughs) whether solicited or not. You know, and I think, you know, it's nice because people have a comfort built in, but it may also be perceived as, you know, as, you know, I spent many, many years training this person. I have a privilege per se to tell this person what to do next and to point out when they're screwing it up you know, as opposed to like someone you don't really know that well. You're like, well, maybe they're just doing it their own way. Right.
1: Right. I think you could take it either way. Like it's either, like you say, it's a familiarity thing or it's a micromanaging thing or, you know what I mean? It, it just depends on the personalities, I think that are involved and, and it is part of the culture too, right? Of the place. So I do want to talk a little bit about culture Sean was already kind of familiar with the the culture at Jefferson having been there but but Sean you went to this community hospital was it different from like the home base from the flagship shop or was it did you have to kind of create or experience a new culture when you when you joined the practice
0: so the cultures were kind of you know it was definitely a culture shock regardless of whether it was under the same yeah uh, enterprise flag I went into a hospital system that was previously privately owned ah. um, and was acquired by Jefferson. so probably 99% of the staff had been there and transcended the, you know the name and title changes. So I was walking into a very tight-knit group. not not within the docs. the docs were all new because as I said, Dr. Wagner was kind of starting it from scratch, but the staff in particular, you know, very similar age to me. so everybody you know, and everybody kind of had their way to do things and they had expectations from the prior. Physicians in the group, but I think that's one thing that I really wanted to like touch on. I think it's you know we talk about very very much so about building your service lines and getting your referring docs to know you and, and appreciate you and respect you, which is obviously paramount to the success of the practice. But I think it for for personal success, becoming one becoming you know a part of the group of your staff and 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 really taking the time to get to know everyone and personally understand, especially when you don't have trainees and you have. RTs that are next to you, every single case helping you, learning who you are, learning your your body mannerisms during procedures and things like that. These things seem so trivial, but they can make a day so much better. And I think that should be the number like the number one priority of anyone who's, you know, not tasked with building a gargantuan service line when they move into practice. Becoming comfortable in your own environment is the most important thing because you cannot be comfortable in other environments if your home base isn't, if your home turf isn't your home turf, you know? Yeah. Turned on any issues
1: with, with like a new culture. I mean, it sounds like Teresa came in, so she was probably just getting settled in as well. But any big culture shift when you joined UAB, how long did it take till you felt like, you know, you're one of the guys like settled in? There wasn't much culture shock because I'm, I was raised in the Southeast.
2: Yeah. So training everything done in Northeast, you know, so kind of got the experience to very, polarized ways of communication with people you know yeah like uh, I tend to think that I'm probably closer to the northeastern way I, where if I if I look at you and I don't say hi that's acceptable and I'm not mad at you it's just like that's just how people do things but down here when you see somebody and you don't say hi it's perceived as pretty rude or when you when you talk to somebody and the first thing you say is what you need them to do instead of hey how's it going how is church yeah you know those kind of things. So it took a little bit of uh fine tuning for the emotional intelligence to kick in and like most people I know I'm emotionally intelligence challenged I guess. <laughs> so it took me a little bit of, you know, time to kind of get used to fitting in in that aspect, you know, just kind of day to day. But in terms of working with, you know, referring physicians working with the team professionally, everything kind of just was smooth from day one you know and part of that is because I actively sought out advice from mentors on how to behave and how to act in the first you know six months to a year as a new attending because I know me and Sean knows knows me you know I can be very polarizing you meet mean people usually say I really like that guy or they say I can't stand that guy very few people are like meh you know so the question is how do you get more people to be I really like that guy
0: I have li- I know because I lived at both of those poles in John John's life. <laughs> Depends on which side what? of the pole you got.
2: <laughs> so I would say that, you know, it, it you have to have an appreciation for cultural differences, you know, whenever you join a new practice. And that could be from a region perspective. That could also be from a practice perspective. You know, if people don't do certain procedures, don't try to reinvent the wheel. You know, like at Pennsylvania Hospital, we did everything. You know, we did literally everything, biopsies, lungs, bones, you know, angios, everything. Lots of paris. At UAB, Paras and thoras. <laughs> no, no, that's legitimate yeah. because at UAB, body radiology does paras and thoras and biopsies. Chest radiology does lung biopsies and ablations. And then, you know, neuroradiology does regular LPs. You know, MSK does joint injections and, and aspirations. So- when I got here, I was kind of like, "Whoa, that's a little bit weird." Yeah, but I'm not going to go and say I'm I'm going to try to go and change the world and you know do all these things. So you have to kind of f- try to figure out how you can fit in. Yeah, and I think people who learn how to do that quickly are the ones who are going to find more success instead of banging their head up against the wall.
1: Yeah, it's so true. I mean, even from Philly, because I moved from Philly to Nashville, residency to. To fellowship and yeah, I, I didn't even think about the cultural differences between northeast and the southeast. It's very true, and it, and it affects every every interaction, right? Referring docs, nurses, techs. So those are some great points. Anything that was that you guys came across that was, you know, it doesn't sound like in your case a UAB, John, John, but like Sean, you're still in Philadelphia, and, and I don't mean to you know rag on Philadelphia. It's still still a great town, but anything that you've come across that's been like toxic because you're in a private basically a hustle that was private practice which there can be these sort of toxic subcultures and you know have you had any of those kinds of challenges and if so how did you overcome them or get through them do you mean toxic
0: toxic subcultures and could and be more specific it could be
1: a bad character right like you got one tech yeah. who's just super lazy and like doesn't you know they they're they don't want to do an ir procedure for example i mean I've had to share labs before with cardiologists and you get these, you get some technologists and they're just dragging their feet and they don't, they don't want to do a case with you. And you got to figure out a way to get through that case safely and then figure out how to like not do any more cases
0: with that person, for example. So I think a lot of this comes with familiarity of the culture and I think, you know, John, John having experience too and you having experience too, it's a navigating in any kind of conflict in, in a situation, right? So it's just a general conflict resolution where in Philadelphia, particularly in Northeast Philadelphia because I know you know Philadelphia can be a little you know rough uh, for lack of a better word, but I think in the Northeast they're definitely not rougher, but they're just more stronger personalities. And you just have to recognize you know how to how to kind of navigate through the situation and kind of talk to them. And I mean, personally, if it's I don't I don't really have lazy texts, thankfully. But if, but, it, or, or, you know, it's, you know, not just text or like any, any other part of the department that doesn't want to do something. I think it's everyone's kind of has a very, uh, our, Wagner was very good at, uh, making the focus and the mission of the department clear and unilateral, you know, in one way. And everyone kind of jumped on in the beginning. So I think navigating those one on ones is really just a situational based thing. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. And it, and it does come to, uh, you know, leadership and a lot of times, it's turning to mentors, right? So uh, you kind of touch on this, John-John, is like seek, you know, and this is going to be one of my questions is, how did you guys in the first couple of years, because for me, mentors were key. I was taught, you know, you guys probably remember Dave Ball. I don't know if he was at Pensy while you were still there, but to this day, is still one of my mentors. He's the guy who inspired me to go into IR. I called him so many times my first few years because, you know, I was just like, how do I deal with this? Whether it was a complication or how to deal with a partner. How did you guys, did you guys already have built-in mentors from, from training or did you seek out new people or find new people in, in your first few years? I'm going to start with you, John. John. Once again, you, you ask great questions. <laughs> you make great points. You know, mentors are
2: key. And I think, you know, every bit of my success that I've experienced is because I've had great mentorship along the way. You know, I, I pride myself on being a really hard worker, but I truly believe that if I didn't have my mentors, there'd be no way that we I could have done half the stuff. And it's a combination of everything you talked about. You know, it's, yeah. You, know, you, you have mentors that, you, that you've developed through training and, you know, they kind of, some kind of stick with you and some kind of don't, you know, based on what you end up doing. And then I make it a point to keep on searching for mentors. And sometimes they're mentors that aren't related to IR. You know, one of my biggest mentors here is the chair of surgery. You know, I ask him questions whenever I have concerns about career advancement because, I mean, he happens to be an Asian American male who is a chair. And, you know, my aspiration is to be kind of like him. And even though he's in surgery and not not IR, you know, he's somebody who's navigated the nuances of, you know, going through the process of ascending the ranks. So I turn to him for a lot of questions. And then I actually make mentors through industry. You know, sometimes the one of the great things about what we do is that we get to interact with industry partners. And sometimes you will find people in the industry that can really help mentor you along in terms of how to think about devices, you know, how to think about patenting. And another one, one of my mentors here is actually uh, our vice chair of innovations. And he's an AI researcher, and I don't know, know anything about AI. But he's a mentor because he does a lot of patents and business building. So, you know, whenever I have questions about how to build a small business around an idea, he becomes a mentor for that. So I think you just have to find people that don't necessarily have to be in your field, but have skills and knowledge that can benefit you for various things. You know, and then sometimes mentors will change them as mentors are going to be younger than you. You know, sometimes you're going to find people who you just think they have really good ideas. And, you know, you want to kind of Pick at how they think, so that way you can grow your own—not only your knowledge, but your actual pathway of thinking—to try to see if you can stay flexible.
1: Yeah, I love that, John, because especially since you found mentors in sort of less likely places, right? It's not somebody in IR, and 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 you got me thinking that like we we tend to look for mentors that are just in our specialty, but that doesn't have to be the case, right? And that's that's great that you found somebody in your new you know, in your new practice location that is in a different department altogether, who can, who can help you out and be there for you. That's fantastic. Sean, what about you? How how have you found any unexpected mentors or has it been mostly people from training? Can you tell us a little about that?
0: Yeah, sure. This is something that I feel very strongly about and very passionate about. Actually, John John, you know, was one of my mentors when I was a resident because I really had no application for fellowship and he helped me flesh my application out and strengthen my candidacy for fellowship so obviously hats off to you john john but uh i think in when it's a moving target just like john john said because at every stage in your life in this professional in uh, realm whether it be training post-training or further out you're going to have different expectations and different things that motivate you to be happy and different things that different things you need support for so there are mentors that provide you support like as you said aaron you know, in the case, oh man, I, I caused a complication. I don't really know how to react to this emotionally. You need someone who's going to be there for you that's going to actually provide you with not not just a way out, but a way to kind of cope with this because these things are going to happen when you do procedures, right? And then you're going to have mentors that provide you with motivation to succeed and, and gain internal fulfillment. And I, those, are the, those are the ones that, you know, they might align a little bit more closely with your professional uh, status. So you know, those are the ones that kind of get what you are doing and want and want to help you get further. And I, that kind of reminds me of John John talking about the, you know, the chief of surgery. He might not be an IR, but he's an Asian American physician who's in a position of leadership in a procedural field. Maybe not the same field, but it's pretty common, you know, trajectories. So yes, I think that mentorship is, and honestly, when you receive mentorship and you recognize it, it is very important to pay it forward because you need to make sure that the people that are coming after you experience the same insulation for their success and, and you know, kind of emotional support uh, that you felt because it really just perpetuates a really, the happiness that is our field and what we do. Yeah, the emotional support
1: is like number one, it's key, right? And, and you know, I'm fortunate in that my wife is a physician and because we're docs, we know like our social circles tend to be 90% physicians, right? I mean. It just happens throughout training, you know, med school, you know, training and so forth. But the mentorship piece with the emotional support is key because a lot of times that mentor has been through that same thing. If they're if they're older, if they're more seasoned, and you're and you're right, Sean. I think paying it forward is huge, um, and just not otherwise. It's yeah, it it could be a bit selfish to not be helping out the the younger generation. But that that's, that's my transition to talking about the other life events that happen in early career and that can be some of the most challenging stuff, right? You're in you're finishing up training in your sort of early to mid 30s. Usually that's around the time when, you know, we're getting married, we're having kids, we're paying we have to start paying off loans, we're starting to look at buying a house. All that stuff on top of being an early, you know, early attending can be super stressful. Can you guys share any stories about um, you know, like navigating that and anything that's been particularly challenging for you and, and any solutions or advice for those out there going through the same thing. I'll start
0: with you, Sean. Yeah. So I decided to do the shotgun approach for this and uh, currently just closed on a new house and my wife is expecting her first child. So I think it's uh, all happening at once, but <laughs> cheers. Thank you. But I think early, very early on in the first year, I mean, it's very, very hard to navigate outside of work when you're all you're thinking about is work and you're and it, not in a sense where you're obsessed with work, but it's just the anxiety that comes with the, you know, along with the, the, the situation. I would say everyone has to, at this point has to have some kind of understanding about what their emotional and psychological bandwidth is. Uh, so I think it's very important to be realistic about what you can and cannot do, um, not to overload yourself because the extracurricular work that comes with these kind of things is obviously like, you know, having children is you can't, you can't put a time on that. You can't, you can't expect that to happen when you needed to but i think you know you just have to try and be do the best you can to budget your um psyche a little bit yeah john john anything on your front yeah yeah
1: <laughs> so <laughs> you don't have to share you know we get, i'm gonna yeah, be honest with
2: you guys <laughs> this part of my life is the part i suck at work life balance. and sean knows you know I'm usually the guy there at 5.30 in the morning and I'm there until like the short call resident leaves almost, you know. So I've told my wife before we got married that work was going to come first. She still married me. <laughs> Turns out, you know, that that's not the right way to approach things. Um, it's interesting, you know, people who know me will think I'm a hypocrite, but as I've gone two to three years into practice, my bit of advice is, treasure the family time that you have and don't give it up for anything else in the world. Taking that extra call, doing that extra meeting, those are things that, you know, people will ask you to do and the things that you want to do for promotion, et cetera. But, you know, when you think about what really matters, family matters the most. And my my daughter is seven. And if I would say there's anything in my early career that I've regretted, it's missing all of those daddy-daughter breakfasts that their schools have you know not to say the food's good you know it's just being there for her so that way when she's sitting there you know eating and seeing all the other dads with the daughters you know and you know i'm at work you think about it it's like what what would have that hour actually amounted to you know why couldn't i have just called in and said i'll be there at nine instead of at eight the world's not going to end but you know my daughter's day would have certainly been a lot better So those are the kind of things, you know, you need to start thinking about, you know, as you become a father or, you know, mother, you know, just valuing the children and, you know, and spending more time with them when you can and when they still want to see you. Yeah. Um, that's, that's the
1: biggest thing. I totally agree. The kids will break you, right? I mean, they're just, you, you don't expect it because I mean, that was probably when I worked the hardest was early career i probably could work off of five hours a night of sleep every night right and then with you know, the kids or babies same thing they're babies they don't really know if you're there or not but then when they start getting like three four and they really want to see you and hang out with you and every time you come home they're crying out dad and coming to the, to the door that's when you start your priorities start shifting and you're like yeah i don't really need to be there i don't need to take that extra shift and you, you hit the nail on the head john john and, And Sean, this is coming for you too. I mean, it just (laughs) comes with the territory, I think with having kids and maybe it's a generational thing. I I know my, our parents were like that. They just worked and worked and worked and it wasn't, but it wasn't the same relationship I think um, with kids and, and their parents as it is now. I think we, we tend, our generation and your generation tend to prioritize that family time a little bit more, especially as physicians. So uh, that's my advice I, I i echo that advice john john I, I think it was solid and and sean congrats to you on starting a new family and all the good thanks. things to come too This is real-time mentoring right yeah. now. you see there <laughs> he, he, he
0: never,
2: stops. He never <laughs> yeah. stops yeah congratulations sean so happy for you <laughs> thanks man
1: um <laughs> So I wanted to kind of finish up with one more thing in terms of like challenges. Uh, one thing that I found especially challenging starting out was this whole business side of medicine that, you know, we're, we're basically insulated from as, as trainees, like nobody's teaching us about insurance or billing or marketing or any of that stuff when we're residency or fellowship. And then you get out and, you know, as an attending and suddenly, you know, you got to do these insurance calls and go out on you know with the marketing folks and whatnot anything that's um any
0: advice you guys can give on, on that front sean i'll start with you for for me everything is pretty much you know blank slate and i had to do a lot of stuff on my own thus far uh i think it's an opportunist situation where you know some people are lucky enough that they have physician liaisons and this is particularly for market the marketing uh subtext but i think you know you just really have to kind of follow by example from from other institutions and just try and learn the best you can on your own. Um, I think the marketing in a smaller scale starts with the peer-to-peer relationships. Don't try and address full groups of physicians without each of them actually know, being able to associate your face with your name because then you just look like a salesperson. Um, I think if you have a personal relationship with the group, then you can address them about, you know, oh, oh how do you guys feel about UFE or UAE or you know spine ablations things like that I think that's that's really important as far as the billing and insurance things insurance insurance claims and we're we're all familiar with that we see it all over twitter about who's getting who's denying what who's paying out of pocket I think this is a a growing pain that we will probably have to suffer through for a long time until we have enough bandwidth and training to or have our own you know trajectory to add that in but I'm not even sure any other specialty really has any kind of guidance in that in that era in that realm either and maybe that's to the design of insurance companies or maybe not I don't know but I think it's just really you just have to you you can't avoid it if it comes to you do not delegate it to somebody else if you have a advanced practice uh, provider in your in your practice don't make them do it do it yourself feel the actual pain that they have to go through and then that's the only way to learn, right? You, the only way to get feedback is to receive a stimulus. So I think that's the kind of thing you have to do do on your own. John,
1: John, anything to add to that in terms of navigating these early career challenges when it comes to the business side of medicine, sort of learning, you know, how to basically how to get paid for the procedures we do.
2: Yeah, so two things. First, marketing. So being in academics, thankfully, marketing is typically done by you know, big groups instead of just pure individuals. That being said, for me personally, I in building service lines, one of the things I think about is what am I trying to do? Like who am I trying to help and who do I need to talk to? And I find it easiest actually when the other party plays golf. Because then I can just go out of the golf course and say, hey, let's let's go play 18 holes. And during that time you get to you get to have their pretty much undivided attention for four and a half to five hours. You get to see what kind of person they are through their golf game, because you can see if they're like, you know, very liberal with a little bit of release. You know what I mean? Like keep the ball around, subtract a few scores, or if they're very by the books, you know, like they're, they got the worst break in the world and they play it they, you know, you can tell a lot about people from, you know, from leisure activities, you know, and how they behave to determine if that's somebody who you want to be a potential, you know, partner in your, in your practice, you know I mean? Not like co-IR, but like refer, because if your refer is, you know, not going to be upfront with you, then you don't want to work with somebody who's going to potentially, you know, do things for not so glorious reasons, you know what I mean? So that's one thing, you know, is to kind of assess the field and make sure that your referrers are, that they do things above board. The other thing is going to be about Insurance and billing. So I do BVNAs or the intracept procedure. It's relatively new, probably been out for about four years now. Uh, It's got FDA clearance, you know, 2019. And quite frankly, a lot of private payers don't pay for it. So I get tons of letters saying, we're not paying for this. We're not paying for this. And I have reached out to the CMO of one of the local healthcare systems here and actually got it approved. Like I actually found a way to get in contact with their CMO and sat down. Presented the data, talked with them about it from a from a pure patient care perspective, and that was enough to convince them to pay for this procedure. Not not saying this isn't work for all, but those are the kind of things that you need to do if you're really passionate about you know what you do, and you know that's kind of what you know Sean was talking about. Don't delegate that to somebody. If I told my PA to do that, what do you think the chance of the CMO is going to listen to my PA? And then the other thing is, you really just have to. Do what's best for the patient. If you do what's best for the patient, everything else will fall in line. So during my year of Mayo, they do this like orientation. It takes like two or three weeks of orientation. And that that entire period of time is just keep on reminding you to reinstill that fire, that best consideration for the patient is the only consideration. And once you behave in that aspect, things just work out. Things will just fall in line because you're gonna do a good job and after that, you just have to make good business decisions. You know, once you've done what's right for the patient, then you just start working on business, and then you can figure out how to do that. But once you have that first part done, right. everything else will fall in line.
1: That's great advice, John-Dry. It's funny, when you first mentioned the golf thing, I was like, oh, that's very, that's very old school. That's very Caddyshack. Take it, <laughs> take it out on the golf course. But I love that you're picking up stuff about them. You're, you're actually evaluating them as a, you know, are they cheating? Are they, you know, are they not uh, counting that extra putt, you know? You're actually learning things about them as people uh, when you have them out there, and that, that, I think that's solid advice. I wish I was more of a golfer because that is such an easy thing too, especially if it's a hobby that you that you love. Most people, right, are willing to go out on the golf course and hit the ball around a little bit. My I, 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 my sport was ice hockey, so it's it a little bit harder to get people out on the ice. <laughs> 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 You know, <laughs> so it's usually just, hey, I want to grab a coffee or, you know, a beer or something. But, uh, all right, well, guys, you guys have given so much solid advice. I want to finish up with, uh, one, you know, final thoughts. I want to I know, now that you guys have been out a couple years, what do you wish someone told you when you were first starting? For those people that are just about, they're finishing up next month, they're about to start in July. I, Sean, you mentioned the year, sorry, the month off, which I think is solid advice too. I took a month off and it was... It was fantastic just to have that sort of mental break. But anything else that you wish somebody had told you uh, starting out, Sean? Let's start with you.
0: Yeah, I think the one thing I really, really want to touch on is you know the first three months of of attending Hood. It was probably one of the scariest times of my life. I think you know going back to what John John said about being at work all the time and like being there early and being there late and and everyone's going to do that and it's going to be driven by fear of doing something wrong or missing a detail. Because missing a detail, working up a consult as a fellow doesn't really mean anything because someone else is going to catch it. But everything, even though it might, you might have a lot of support, things are, you're going to feel like everything is on you and you have to, you have to dot every I and cross every T. I wish someone had told me how long that that feeling would last, because then I would at least know that I had a defined endpoint. And for me in particular, it was probably around three to five months, which is almost akin to in fellowship when you become a little bit more comfortable in your skin in the procedure Um, it's very similar Um, I will say that every single procedure is the hardest procedure you've done of that type in your entire training career every first port every first filter every first pick every first midline you're going to be sweating no matter what but after you get to the second or third one it's going to become cake and eventually everything's going to fade away and you're going to be you know, rest in trust in the skills that you've been taught during your fellowship. And that's going to kind of guide you along the way. Yeah. Solid advice. John, John, anything to add to that?
2: I think, you yeah, know, you hit the nail on the head. The only thing I want to add to that is, you know, for all the fellows listening to this or me graduating, the SIR has an early career section. And if you are going into academics or private practice, it doesn't really matter. Just check it out. Because that's going to connect you with people who are one to eight years out of practice. And I, I'll i have to say, like, all of us are more than eager to share our experiences and act as mentors. So, you know, if you don't have a mentor, or you're not sure, you know, who to reach out to, just look to SIR. I mean, I'm pretty sure all the fellows listening to this, <laughs> you know, have interacted with the SIR at some point in time. So there's an early career section filled with people like, you know, myself and Sean. And we know we're, we're there for you. You know, you, you can cold email us, you know, and more than happy to chat.
1: Yeah. So I I guess, um, best way to reach you guys, I, we're not going to put your email in the show notes, but are you guys both on Twitter or LinkedIn where they could reach you that way as well?
0: I'm on both
2: both, but uh, I mean, I'm, I am not a big social media person,
1: so I don't mind if you share my email. And I don't mind if you share mine either. All right, well, thank you guys so much. Anything that I'm leaving behind that you guys wanted to get across that we didn't have time for, I want to add one more thing to the last thought. yeah, I cannot stress
2: the importance of being aligned with your chief. you know there's one person in the entire uh system that you need to be aligned with. It's your chief. If you're on aligned with your chief, you're done for a ring career. start looking for a new job basically right pretty much like instantly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was something that I didn't have time to get to. And it might be a whole nother topic for another episode is how to pivot, right? Whether you're pivoting a service line, you're pivoting a job or pivoting, you know, your staff culture, like how do you move that, that momentum? Um, because yeah, that, those are some of the horror stories I've heard. John John is getting recruited somewhere and either there's a change in guard of leadership or the leadership's not what we expected. And then you end up finally searching for a new job pretty quick so I'm going to finish it up there right, okay bye (laughs) thank you so much for listening if you haven't already make sure to subscribe rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend if you have any questions or comments direct message us at at underscore backtable on Instagram Twitter or LinkedIn backtable is produced and hosted by myself Aaron Fritz and co-host Chris Beck Sabine Don Michael Barraza Jacob Fleming and Ali Behetti
2: Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhirter Aaron Bowles Nick Shellcross
1: and Ness Smith-Savadoff Design and
2: Digital Marketing led by Brian Schmitz Article and Transcript support by Taylor Robinson
0: and Delaney Aguilar Social Media and PR by Ann Dang
2: Administrative support provided by Willie Kinnebrew.
1: Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening.